And as we begin this morning, we would like to, before we go into Ephesians chapter 2, we'd like to look at Ephesians chapter 1 for just a few moments. There's three verses there. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. And I'll just read that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Ephesians 1.4 says, Just as He chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in Him. God's sovereign choice. God's divine election. John 6.44 tells us that no one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. God's elective will irresistibly draws to himself those to whom he has predetermined to love and forgive. From all eternity, God chose us in him, in Christ. By God's sovereign choice, those who are saved were placed in eternal union with Christ before creation ever took place. Although our will is not free in the sense that many of us suppose we do have a will, every one of us, a will that Scripture clearly supports. Apart from God, man's will is captive to sin, but we are able to choose God because God has made that choice possible. In John 3.16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have everlasting life. So we see whosoever believes in him. The many commands to the unsaved to respond to Christ clearly indicate the responsibility of man to exercise his own will. In Isaiah 55, 1, we'll turn there very quickly. Isaiah 55, 1. And it says, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. So come, everyone who thirsts. Also in Matthew 3, 1 and 2, Matthew tells us this. Matthew 3, verse 1. He says, this is uh, John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there's something we need to do. We need to repent. And also in Matthew 3, or 11, 28, he says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come unto me. Yet the Bible is clear that no person receives Jesus Christ as Savior 
who has not been chosen of God. And we see in Romans 8, 29. Romans 8, 29. Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Those whom he foreknew, even before the foundation of the world. So we know that God's sovereign election and our responsibility in choosing Jesus Christ seem opposite and irreconcilable truths. And that is why that so many of us well-meaning Christians through the history of the church have become so confused by trying to reconcile them. Since the problem cannot be resolved by our finite minds, we can't understand it. The result is always to compromise one truth in favor of the other, or weaken both by trying to take a position somewhere in between them. We should believe both truths completely and leave the harmonizing of them to God. He's God. Divine sovereignty and human response are inseparable parts of salvation. Though exactly how they operate, only the infinite mind of God knows. And it's all for the glory of God. John Chadwick wrote this, I sought the Lord, and afterwards I knew. He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not that I found, O Savior, true. No, I was found by Thee. God is the one who found us. Praise the Lord. We're thankful this morning that Robin read these first ten verses for us. And so I think we'll uh, just continue on here. There's no need reading them over again. And we find here and in the first 10 verses, that Paul shows us the past, the present, and the future of you and I, the believer. He tells us what we were in verses 1 and 3. <clears throat> he tells us what we are, verses 4 through 6 and 8 and 9. And he tells us what we will be in verses 7 through 10. So we find that Paul gives six, ele six elements to our gospel of salvation. And the first element is salvation is from sin, our life before Christ. Salvation is from sin, our life before Christ. These three verses give a clear statement of you and I our lives before being saved. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Except for Jesus, that is the condition of every man, every woman, every child, since the fall in the Garden of Eden. It is the past condition of we believers, and it's the present condition of everyone else, those that are unbelievers. Our principal problem is that we have no right to fellowship with God, from whom we are alienated by sin, Ephesians 4.18 tells us. Our sinful condition has nothing to do with the way that we live. 
It has all to do with the fact that we are dead while we are alive. Because we are dead to God, we are dead to spiritual life. We are dead to truth. We're dead to righteousness. We are dead to peace. And we are dead to happiness. That person truly is the living dead, a living corpse, if you please. Dead men walking. That is why that we can't get through to people outside of Christ. We've all tried to talk to those that are outside of Christ, and it's hard to get through to them because their life is alienated by sin. They are dead, as it says in verse 1, in trespasses and sins. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Although we as fallen creatures know God, we did not honor Him as God. In Romans 1.21. In the state of spiritual death, the only walking or living we can do is according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. It is the world's system, the world's values, and the world's course. We see it all around us. Paul makes it clear that the course of this world follows the leadership of Satan, the prince and the power of the air. Satan is now the ruler of this world, and until the Lord casts him out, he would continue to rule. Now we find that there's three elements that most rule our present world today. We find that they are humanism, materialism, and illicit sex. It's all around us. Humanism places man above all else. Man is his own boss. Man is his own standard. Man is his own authority. And in short, man is his own God. Isn't that what we see today in our society? Man is his own God. Materialism, number two. Money becomes his God. Because money can acquire all things. Money can give us fame. It can give us power. Uh, it can help us buy anything that we choose except the peace of God. But today, people think they can get satisfaction through money. And thirdly is illicit sex. It's everywhere. We're living in a sexual revolution. And it dominates our society like none other since the lowest period of ancient Greece or Rome. Humanism, materialism, and sexual vice is used to promote and persuade in virtually every field of marketing. 
giving in to self-pleasure. The Bible says, I believe it's in Peter, I think, that it says that in the last days men will be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. It represents the spirit of our age, the current course of this world. Paul's primary purpose here, though, is not only to show how unsaved people live, but it's to remind us, as he says here, how we, you and I, formerly walked and formerly lived. We once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. Every one of us. We were lost without Christ. Every one of us who are believers was once totally lost in the system of this world, the flesh, and the devil. <clears throat> Those are fallen man's great areas, three great areas, where we are in a losing battle with our spiritual enemies. Rather than all men being children of God, as most of the world, or America especially, would like to believe, those who have not received Jesus Christ are by nature children of wrath. Apart from being reconciled through Christ, every person by human birth is the object of God's wrath, His eternal judgment, and His condemnation. But though we were once even as the rest of mankind, through faith in our Savior, we are no longer like them. Because of Christ's past work on the cross for the salvation that is in us, we are no, we are no longer dead, we're no longer doomed, we're no longer depraved, we're no longer damned, and we're no longer done. Praise God. Secondly, salvation is by love. Salvation is from sin, and it's by love's God's, by love. God's mercy is rich, His mercy is without measure, and His mercy is unlimited. But God, he starts out in verse 4, maybe the two most beautiful, most comforting, most powerful words in the entire Bible, but God. Paul just exclaimed, explained that we were dead in our sins, we were living for every desire of the mind and the body, by nature children of wrath, full of every good work. We were without hope. We were lost. Then those two words, but God, being rich in mercy, shows up in verse 4. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What love the Father has for his own. While we were yet sinners, he died for me and for you. One of the great stories of Christ's being rich in mercy is in John, uh, chapter 8, verses 3 through 11. And I'm going to go there and I'm going to read that. The reason is because we could, we could give it to you, but I'm afraid 
It's so easy to speculate sometimes, and I do not like to do that. I want the word to speak as it says. John chapter 8, verses 3. Well, we'll go to even one. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Now, verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And just this morning as I was reading that, it leaped out the page at me when it says, This woman has been caught in adultery. Where's the man? There had to be a man. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said that to test Jesus, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now we knew under the old law, yes, they were to be stoned. But under the new law, under the day of grace, Jesus said even if a woman looks, a man looks at a woman to <clears throat> complete, uh, if a man looks at a woman in his, with lust in his heart, he's already committed adultery with her. So how many of those old boys could say, <laughs> could say that didn't happen? And once before he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Where's your accusers? And she says, this is interesting. She says, No one, Lord. She called him Lord. She accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. What a wonderful testimony for God's rich mercy. Here he offers a repentant sinner forgiveness and reconciliation as he does every repentant sinner. Through our sin and our rebellion, we are guilty of Jesus' crucifixion. But God's mercy and God's love provides a way for us to participate in the righteousness of his cross. He says, I know what you've done and who you are. But because of my great love for you, your penalty has been paid through the work of my son on your behalf. For his sake, I offer you forgiveness. To come to me, you only need to come to him. Not only did he love enough to forgive, but he loved enough to die for those of us who offended him. 
there again while we were yet sinners. He died for us. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Compassion and love to those who, are, who don't deserve it makes salvation possible to you and I. Chapter, or, I'm sorry, verse 3, or uh, number 3. Salvation is unto life. Salvation is unto life in verse 5. Above everything else, a dead person needs to be what? Needs to be made alive. That is what salvation gives. It gives us spiritual life. To encourage any of us who doubt the power of Christ in your life, Paul reminds us that God was powerful enough to give us spiritual life together with Christ. He is certainly able to sustain that life. That power that raised us up out of that life of sin and death made us alive together with Christ. It reminds me of a story that I once heard about an elderly man and a woman who was found dead in their apartment. And the autopsy showed that uh, these folks died of severe malnutrition. They literally starved themselves to death. But investigators found, now this is really unbelievable, they found that there was a total of $400,000 in cash in their closet in paper bags. 400,000 bucks. And here they starved themselves to death. I can't hardly, I, I, my mind quite really won't go there. I don't understand that. And yet, it reminds me of how many times, maybe myself or many Christians, are prone to treat our spiritual resources like that miserly couple treated their financial resources. They literally starved themselves to death spiritually. We can do that. Beloved, we have this Word of God. I think every one of us have a Bible, as much as I know. They're sure available. If, you, if anyone does it, we'll get you one. We can read this Bible each and every day. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that should be our goal, our desire. We should love this word. What is uh, the first psalm said? David said, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the ways of the wicked, but stands in the way of sinners. But his delight is in the, the way of, his delight is in the word of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. We should desire to meditate on this word every day of our lives and pray to God. That's the only way we can grow. I, I read a statistic not long ago, and it said that, I can't hardly believe this, it said that the average Christian today in America spends seven minutes a week in God's word. Seven minutes a week.
Now you tell me, how in the world can we grow in Christ if we only read the Bible seven minutes a week? We'll starve ourselves to death. We as believers can be in danger of suffering from spiritual malnutrition because we miss what is in the great storehouses of spiritual nourishment at our disposal. How sad. Because we now have God's nature and we can seek godly things, the things that are above rather than the things of the earth. Colossians 3.2 tells us, it says, since you were risen with Christ, seek those things that are above. That is what results from being alive with Christ. We shall also live with him, Romans 6.8 tells us. Galatians 2.20 says that I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not my life, it's his. It's not me, but it's he who lives his life in and through me. In Christ, you and I cannot help but please God. In Christ. Number four, salvation is with a purpose. Verses six and seven. <clears throat> salvation has a purpose in regard to you and I and in regard to God. Our most direct result of salvation is to be raised up with him and to be seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is our position in Christ. Now only are we dead to sin and alive not only are we dead to sin and alive to righteousness through his resurrection, but we also enjoy his exaltation and share in his future glory. We have a new citizenship with Christ. This is not our home. Our home's in heaven. God seats us in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus. Even though we have not yet inherited all that God has for us in Christ, to be in heavenly places is to be in God's domain. That's where our blessings are. That is where our fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is. And that is with all the saints who have gone on before us. 1 Peter 1.4 tells us that we have an inheritance. And it is undefiled, imperishable, unfading, reserved and kept in heaven for you. We have a reservation, folks, in heaven, bought and paid for. And it's not only for our benefit and glory. God's greater purpose in salvation is for His glory, for His sake, in order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace through his endless kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God glorifies himself even as he blesses you and I. From the moment of salvation through the ages to come, 
through all eternity, we never stop receiving His grace and kindness. We're going to read Revelations chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. It gives us a tremendous... shows us what's going to take place at the end, 7, 9 through 12. And it says, after this, this is John speaking, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. All heaven and earth will glorify Him because of what He has done for us through Jesus Christ. All His glory forever and ever. Number five, salvation is by grace through faith. Salvation is by grace through through faith. Our response to God's grace and salvation is faith. But even that is not of ourselves, it says. It's the gift of God. Even faith is a gift of God. So we can't earn it. Faith is nothing we can do by our own power. Otherwise, salvation would be by our own works. And we would have grounds to boast in ourselves. Paul wants to emphasize to us that even faith is not from us apart from God's giving it. Faith is present or presented as a gift from God and God alone. There was a story once told of a man who was very eager but very late to a revival meeting. Back in the day, they used to have revival meetings, tent meetings, and the evangelists would come and preach the gospel. But anyway, and he found a workman tearing down the tent where the meetings were held. And he was frantic and missing the evangelist. And he asked one of the workers what he could do to be saved. And the man who was a Christian there replied, and he says, you can't do anything. It's too late. And the man was horrified. And he says, what do you mean? How can it be too late? And he was told, the work has already been accomplished. All you have to do now is believe. Just believe it. And that's the way it is with our salvation. The work has already been accomplished. All we have to do is believe it. Church membership, giving your time, your talents, your treasure, being a good neighbor, taking communion, keeping 
The Ten Commandments, having, they have no power to bring us salvation, even though they're very good, and we should do them. The only thing we can do that has any part in our salvation is to exercise faith in what Jesus Christ has already done. When we accept the finished work of Christ, we act by faith, supplied by His grace. Faith is simply breathing out the breath of God that God's grace supplies. Yet the paradox is that we must exercise it and bear the responsibility if we do not. Obviously, if it is true that salvation is all of God's grace and grace alone, it is not a result of works. Human effort has nothing to do with it. Romans 3.10 tells us that all, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is no one. There is none righteous. No, not one. No one understands no one seeks God. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. That tells us pretty much where it's at, huh? There's none righteous. And 320 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Only by grace through faith can we be saved. There was a story that was, I'm sorry. Nevertheless, good works have an important place, as Paul is quick to show us. <clears throat> Number six is salvation is unto good works. Salvation is unto good works. And I'd like for you to underline, if you're keeping notes, unto. It's unto good works. Although they have no part in gaining our salvation, good works have a great deal to do with living out our salvation. No good works can produce salvation, but many good works are produced by our salvation. John 15, 8 says, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Good works do not bring discipleship, but they prove that it is genuine. When we bear fruit for the kingdom, we bring glory to his name. The same power that created us in Christ Jesus empowers us to, be, to do the good works for which he has redeemed us. These manifest a true salvation, a righteous attitude, and acts come from a transformed life now living in the heavenlies. Those who aren't dead but are alive. 2 Timothy 3.17 says that the believer is equipped for every good work. 
Titus 2.14 says Christ died to bring to himself a people zealous for good works. In Philippians 2.12 and 13, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Here Paul's primary message to we believers, many of us who have experienced salvation for many, many years, he is not showing us how to be saved. He's showing us how we were saved in order to convince us that the same power that saved us is the same power that keeps us. We cannot save ourselves. Neither can we keep ourselves saved. Only through Jesus Christ. Only through Jesus Christ. How thankful I am for that. Because <laughs> I know this man. <laughs> These good works are expected because God, as it says, prepared before him or beforehand that we should walk in them. And that is why that James 2, 17 through 26 tells us that faith is dead if works are not present. He even tells us, he goes into a little detail and he says that if you see a man or a woman that's in need of food or clothes and you just say, well, be, be warmed and filled, what good's that going to do him? But if you see a man or woman in need of food and clothes and you go buy him groceries and you go put clothes on his back, that's faith with works. Faith without works is dead. That's what he's saying. Not that we're saved by our works, but it's dead without them. It shows that we are saved. The word workmanship, as he explains here, is in the Greek, the word poema, where we get the word poem. It's a piece of literary workmanship. In Romans 8.29, God designed us to be conformed to the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think Phil said Sunday that was, you know, that should be our greatest desire. That we should be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And I hope and pray that by the end of 2017, I am more conformed to Christ than I am today. That's my desire, my prayer for all of us. If we really want to grow as a church, even numerically, that's the way to do it. You be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and show love to one another. People will want to come. They can't resist it. Can't resist God's love. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Boy, what a, what a promise. That salvation that I've given to him, he'll complete it until the end of time, the end of my days. Praise God. 
The story is often told of a rowdy but a very disruptive little boy in Sunday school class. And he continually frustrated his teacher. And one morning the teacher asked him, he said, why do you act like this, son? He said, don't you know who made you? In which the little boy quickly replied, yes, God did, but he ain't finished with me yet. And yeah, he's not finished with me yet either. We are still imperfect, uncut diamonds being finished by our divine master craftsman. But God's not finished with us yet. But his work will not cease in my life or your life as believers until he has made us into the perfect likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for that. Now in closing, we're going to tell one more little story. It's about a famous actor. And this actor was a guest speaker at a social gathering where he received many requests to recite favorite literary works. And in that room that day, there was an old preacher who happened to be there, and he asked him, Sir, would you recite the 23rd Psalm? And he said, Sure. I would love to. He said, As long as you will recite it after me. And he agreed. And the actor got up and he recited that psalm beautifully with great dramatic emphasis for which everyone in the room <clears throat> gave him great applause. And they even rose and stood on their feet and gave him a standing ovation. They were so moved by how, how well he performed. Then it was time for the old preacher to get up, and he rose up on kind of wobbly knees, and his voice was broken, and it was rough from many years of preaching the Word of God. And when he recited that 23rd Psalm, there wasn't no applause. But there wasn't a dry eye in that room. He had touched the heart. And later, the actor was asked, what was the difference between you two? You both recited the 23rd Psalm. But you got all the acc accolades and he got tearful eyes. And the actor said, oh, that's very simple. He says, I know the psalm, but the old preacher knows the shepherd. Now, I wonder this morning, that is the culmination of our message, really. Do you and I know the shepherd? That's the key. 
How well do I know the shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I know him in an intimate way? Philippians chapter 3, I believe it is verse 10, that he says, Paul says, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, that I might know him. That's what we need to know. We need to know Jesus Christ as our shepherd. So that's the question that I'll ask each one of us this morning. Do you, do I, know the shepherd? Are we dead or are we alive? It's time now to go to communion. I guess basically we've been speaking, you know, preaching the gospel, so. But I think for just a moment, I'd like to really turn our focus on the cross. And I think we have been. But I'd like to see Jesus hanging right there on that cross. Those spikes is where they drove his hands and his feet. They drove them right through the flesh. He was stretched out every, every muscle, every joint, every nerve was in pain, racked in pain. They placed a crown of thorns and they beat him on the head with a rod a reed, blood trickled down, and they spit on him, and they laughed at him. They called him, they said, Hail, King of the Jews, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And he said he could have called for 10,000 angels, but he didn't. He knew his hour had come. He had to die on this cross for you and for me. But you know, as I see Jesus hanging there on the cross, it's not just the pain and the suffering physically that I see. I see that he took my sins and your sins on that cross. And it says that he literally became sin, the very perfect Lamb of God, became sin for me, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He paid a debt he, he did not owe. <clears throat> I owed a debt that I could not pay. And I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. Praise the Lord this morning for the gospel of salvation that we have alone through him.